Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Happy Mother's Day. Um, it's kind of weird to think that last year, this time, we were unable to gather, which I'm sure um, was not a normal Mother's Day uh, for many of us. And so praise the Lord that we certainly can gather and we can open up His Word and we can thank the Lord for all the women He has blessed us in our lives, for our wives, uh, for our moms. Um, and so you guys are such a blessing. Uh, don't forget, on your way out, we have a small little gift for you. Um, and so make sure you pick one up at the info. Center. But if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to Acts, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 38, as we are continuing our series through the book of Acts. Now, uh, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and so he is rushing, trying to make it to Jerusalem before Pentecost. And so he did not want to risk a long delay in Ephesus. So instead of stopping by Ephesus, he bypassed Ephesus. He traveled further south to Miletus, and yet despite his rush, he still wanted to invest in the church of Ephesus. And so he calls the elders uh, to meet him in Miletus. And so he gives them this farewell address. And in his farewell address, he, he uses his example of how he served among them. And then he also gives them instructions of what it looks like to oversee the church that the Lord has bought with his blood. Now, as we find ourselves in Acts chapter 21, which that's where we're going to be, we're going to see the Apostle Paul's life really illustrates the painful pleasures of following Jesus. Like Paul is a man on a mission heading to Jerusalem. His friends think he is crazy, but Paul is resolved and compelled by the Spirit that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, in our text today, there are two dominant themes. The very first theme we're going to talk about is the gift of Christian community. And the second theme we're going to talk about is the cost of Christian discipleship. And what we're going to see in Acts chapter 21 is that Paul's trip to, to Jerusalem is full of hellos and also goodbyes. And so in our text, it's very easy to get overwhelmed by all the names and all the places that he's visiting. And that's not the point. So don't get distracted by it. Don't get overwhelmed by it. Luke is simply mentioning it. Let's acknowledge it. But really what Luke is trying to show us is the importance of Christian community. And what I want you to see is as Paul is making his way to Jerusalem... All the many times he is seeking out Christian community, he's spending time with these people in Christian community, and he's also saying goodbye. And so this is my focus. We're going to go through the text. Don't get bogged down by all the names and all the places. Just look at all the many times he's seeking these fellowship with these believers. He's addressing them. They're addressing him. There's this community, and they say goodbye. So let's look at Acts at chapter 20, verse 36, as we look at this Christian community. It says this, Acts 20, verse 36. After he said this, this is him speaking to the elders in Ephesus, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Acts 21, verse 1 says this. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set, straight for, we set sail straight for Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre, since the ship was to unload its cargo there. 
you, you see what I mean? Don't get bogged down by all of its places. But here's verse 4. Take note of verse 4. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. And through the Spirit, they told Paul, Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey, while all of them with their wives and children accompanied us, accompanied us out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we completed our voyage from Tyree, we reached Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them there. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with them. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And after we'd been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit said. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And when we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. Verse 15. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. That's our text. So we pick up our story with Paul saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus. And considering this speech uh, that Paul gave them, look at the affection that Paul had between uh, the elders of Ephesus that they had for Paul and Paul had for the elders in Ephesus. These are men that loved one another. And how do we know it? Because they knelt down to pray. They were weeping. They were embracing each other. They were kissing each other. They even escorted Paul to the ship, grieving over the fact that they would never see him again and maybe even perhaps wandering, uh, maybe even thinking, maybe one day we will see him in glory. And then Luke uses this heart-wrenching language after saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus. Look at Acts chapter 21, verse 1. He says, after we tore ourselves away. Now, in some of your translations, it's going to say, after we departed. But the word departed literally means we tore ourselves away. So it wasn't just peace out. It was literally tearing like a little child away from his mother's womb. It's just this, this heart-wrenching, emotional Christian community that Paul had with these elders in Ephesus. And again, let, let, let's not get overwhelmed with all the names and all the places, but look at all the many times that Paul spent time with companions, how he sought out Christian community, how, how he stayed with them, how they said goodbye to them. Look, look at verse 4 again. In, in Tyrian verse 4, it says this, We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. And so this group did not know Paul for very long. 
Paul didn't know they were there. He sought them out, and when they found him, he stayed with them seven days. And we know that these people even loved Paul because they were trying to convince him, do not go to Jerusalem. Verse 5 to 6 says, When the week ended, the Christians of Tyre accompanied the missionaries to the beach. And as done in Ephesus, seeing the believers knelt down, prayed before saying farewell. And then in verse 7, in Ptolemais, we, we read about verse 7, we greeted brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. And then in verse 8, they come to Caesarea and they enter into Philip's house, the evangelist, the same Philip who was one of the original seven that was chosen to serve the widows in Acts 6, the same Philip who the Lord used to start a revival in Samaria, the same Philip who, uh, who ministered and shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, the same Philip who, who's, who evangelized all along the coastal towns of Philistia. And then after staying at Philip's house, Paul has made up his mind. He's convinced that the Spirit is leading him there. And even in verse 15 and 16, we see how, how the believers loved him and cared for him and tried to speak into his life and saying, please do not go to Jerusalem. And really the point of this text is just to see how remarkable to observe how often Paul would surround himself with Christian community as he does the work the Lord has called him to do. And so here in Acts 21, we see his friends surround him. They journey together. They spend time together. They walk together. They weep together. No doubt they laugh together. They pray together. They speak into one another's lives. They even disagree. And yet there is this deep Christian community among them. And this is what Luke is trying to show us. And so if you're taking notes, one of the first main themes we see is the gift of Christian community. And the first thing, if you're taking notes, we see the importance, the need for Christian community. The need for Christian community. And so Paul surrounded himself with Christian friends, with brothers and sisters in Christ. He was not a lone ranger that did this mission of God all by himself, but he continually, even though he started almost by himself, he continually surrounded himself with brothers and sisters. And even when he departed companions, he picked up other companions. And the reason why Paul surrounded himself with Christian communities is because he understood, because he was created, just like me and you, into the image of God. And so we're made for community because we've been made in the image of God. How do we know that? Because we know that the God who created us is the triune God who lived in perfect community with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who made us into his image and into his likeness. And what it means to be an image bearer, it means to reflect God. And because God is a God in community, we are created as a people to live in community with one another. And Paul wasn't the only one that surrounded himself with with other companions. We even see that in Jesus in the life of his ministry. Jesus was known to be the friends of sinners. Even later on, he called his disciples friends. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 12 to 15 says this, This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are 
are my friends. If you do what I command you, I do not call you servants anymore because servants doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I've made known to everything I have heard from my father. I, I like what Tim Keller says. He says this, the need and to want deep spiritual friendship is not a sign of spiritual immaturity, but of maturity. It's not a sign of weakness, but it's a sign of health. Now, now, now think about in Genesis chapter 2, before the fall, after God created everything, God declared everything he created was good, with one exception. It was not good for Adam to be alone. And again, I love what Tim Keller says on this subject. This is what he says. He says, Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friends is the one ache that is not the result of sin. God has made us in such a way that we could not even enjoy paradise without friends. Human friends. Adam had a perfect quiet time every day for 24 hours a day, yet he needed friends. So if you're lonely, you're not dysfunctional. You're fine. You're normal. You're lonely because you're not a tree. You're lonely because you're not a machine. You're lonely because you are built this way. Tim Keller says this, but I have to be careful about this one thing because one of the reasons you might not have friends might be because of sin. But the passion for it, the need for it, the sense of lack of it is not wrong. And this is what we have to understand. The need to be in community, that gut-wrenching feeling of feeling alone, that's not sin. That's not being dysfunctional. That is normal. That is how God created you. However, and I'm going to be very careful because I'm stepping into dangerous waters. What is sinful, and this is what we're seeing, uh, especially in our culture and how the enemy has deceived us and what our culture tells us and the lie that we're believing. What is sinful is when we don't surround ourselves with friends but we live in isolation and we replace those friends with pets. What, are, what does our culture teach about dogs? Dogs are man's best friend. I don't hate dogs. I had dogs, but that's a lie from Satan. Man is man's best friend. Like, like that's just the reality. And, and, and so the need to, to, to be with friends is how God created you. But what we do is we have a tendency to buy into the lies of the enemy and we replace the human friends that God created us for and we replace it with animals thinking they will fulfill us. And so what we're really doing is we're assaulting the image of God because we're elevating animals to that of humanity. Like, think about how evil that is that we take an image bearer of God and we either take an animal and elevate him to that image bearer or we lower the image bearer to that of an animal. 
And that is a deep wickedness. That is a lie that the enemy is convincing you of. You are made to live in community. And this is why God said there was no suitable helper. Uh, Adam had all the animals in the world. He named all of them, walked with them, spent time with them. And yet, what did God say? It's not good. He needs a helper. And he created a woman to walk with him. And so let us, let us understand that the need for Christian community. If you're alone, that's normal. But don't fill it up with things because those things will never fill you. Fill it up with friends, brothers and sisters in Christ that can walk with you and encourage you. Uh, the, the second thing we learn is the gift of Christian community is not just the need for Christian community, but how Christian community is established. Think about this. When you become a Christian, you not only enter into a new relationship uh, with God through Jesus Christ, but you also enter into a new relationship with other believers. Like all of us enter into a new relationship with God. We are now no longer enemies of God, but sons and daughters of the king, all because of Jesus have done. But now we also enter into a relationship with one another because what are we all in the family of God? Brothers and sisters in Christ. You're no longer a stranger. You're no longer a friend. It's actually deeper than that. You are a brother and sister in Christ. And it's deeper than blood, because it's Jesus' blood, not my blood nor your blood. And so as Paul journeyed through these various places and he met these various groups of people, we just see this beautiful truth that works out, that the gospel creates a deep community among the people. Like, think about this. What would unite a people that have nothing in common, that comes from diverse backgrounds, speak different languages? The only thing that can unite somebody like that is Jesus Christ. Like the Christians in Tyree had such a deep bond with Paul, even though they didn't know him for very long, they hardly knew him, and yet they felt the freedom to be able to speak into his life and say, by the Spirit, in verse 4, and we'll talk more about it, we feel compelled to tell you, you should not go. And yet Paul disagreed with them in a loving way. How could they do it? Because they all shared the deepest possible commonality with him. They too call Jesus Lord. And not only does Jesus unite us, but Christians are also united by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 verse 3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He doesn't say make every effort to attain it, but make every effort to keep it. In other words, we cannot create unity. God creates unity through his son, what he's done for us, and his spirit living inside of us, but we should make every effort to cultivate it and to maintain it. Again, think about this unity that the brothers and sisters shared with Paul. When he said farewell, what did they do? They knelt down to pray. They embraced. They wept. They kissed one another. They said farewell. And what did they all bow down to? Jesus Christ. The one that held them together. That created this common bond among them. 
So not only do we see the need for Christian community, we see how Christian community is established, but, but uh, here's the third thing we're going to talk about. The Christian community is experienced. Uh, in our text, this is how the Christian community is experienced. The first thing the Christian community has experienced is through practicing of hospitality. So in at least four places in our text, Paul stayed with the believers in Tyre, in Ptolemais, Caesarea, and finally in the home of Manasseh of Cyprus. These believers did not believe that their possessions was their own, but rather that their homes were gifts from the Lord. And they used their gifts from the Lord to share it with other brothers and sisters to, to use in the ministry of God. And so we see how these brothers and sisters displayed hospitality. And the only reason why they displayed it is because they were transformed by the gospel. Because the gospel compels us to practice hospitality. The reason why me and you should practice hospitality is not because the Bible says so, even though it does, but rather because of the gospel. Think about how, uh, how God engaged us and how he practiced hospitality. Think about how the gospel is a message of hospitality. God has welcomed us in. He's made us a new people. He brought us into his family. He welcomed us in. And because he has welcomed us in as sons and daughters, we in turn should welcome others in as brothers and sisters as we welcome them into our homes and into our lives. And so we see how this deep Christian community was experienced through the practicing of hospitality. One of my fears as a result of COVID is now all of a sudden the lack of practicing hospitality because of fear. But this is very important. If we want to be a gospel Christ-centered church that understands the gospel and we want deep, intimate community with one another, we must actively practice hospitality. You take that away and it cripples the community. And so we see here, what, what encouraged Paul? Well, what created, how did he experience this deep Christian community? The fact that he lived and stayed with them for seven days. He spent the night with them. They talked together. They broke a meal, shared a meal together. They, they, they helped process certain decisions as they spoke into one another's life. So the first thing, uh, how they experienced Christian communities through practicing of hospitality. Uh, the, the second one is a showing of affection. These friends displayed visible physical affection for one another we see them weeping we see them embracing we, we see them kissing we see whole families coming together and saying farewell to them walking them all the way up unto the boat now I don't want to push the whole physical affection because some of you don't like it but there certainly should be a sense of a visible showing of affection to one another the third way of how they experience this Christian community is not just hospitality and showing of affection, but also praying together. Uh, we see the, the, the Christians and the elders of Ephesus praying with Paul. We see the Christians in Tyre praying with Paul. And I love what John Paul Hill says. He says, the reference to prayer is not incidental. Everyone was fully aware of the difficulties facing Paul at Jerusalem. 
They were also aware that prayer was the disciples' best fortification in a time of suffering and trial. Deep Christian community involves a fervent prayer for one another. As they share their burdens with one another, and they take their burdens together and lay it at the cross as they call out to King Jesus to, to, to act. The last one of how this deep Christian community was experienced was also discussing important decisions. Acting on God's will was not a private matter for Paul. He did not say, you know what, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. It's none of your business. I don't need to hear anything. But rather he engaged in dialogue with these people. We see others weighed in on this decision uh, not to go to Jerusalem. And yet, following God's guidance always involves allowing others to speak into your lives, to, to allow others to help you process through the decision-making. Now, it doesn't always mean that their counsel might be right. And in this case, they had good intentions and they urged them not to go. The fact, however, Paul had to make the difficult decisions in rejecting their counsel and obey the Lord's will. But yet he involved others in that decision-making process. They shared this common bond together. And so this is what Luke is really trying to show us. He's trying to show us the gift of Christian community and the reason why it's such a gift and it, and, and it should be practiced is because we've been made in the image of God. It's established by Jesus Christ, established through His Spirit living inside of us, and we see how it's experienced through the practicing of hospitality, the showing of affection, the praying together, the helping process through difficult decisions. And so now Luke is, is also showing us the second theme, now the cost of Christian discipleship. Now, Paul was confident that God was leading him to Jerusalem. And at the same time, there were Christians that were equally as confident that God had not called them to go to Jerusalem. So, 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 so what do we do when we hear conflicting voices? When we feel confident that this is where the Lord is leading us, and yet there are brothers and sisters in Christ that are confident saying, no, this is not where the Lord is leading you. And so in our text, we really have four perspectives uh, on Paul's resolution to go to Jerusalem. The very first perspective is Paul's perspective. Paul, man, he's in a hurry. He wants to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost, even though he knows it involves suffering. He's determined to give this love offering to the church of Jerusalem that he's collected from these Gentile churches to show them the grace of God, to, to show them this solidarity, this love between brothers and sisters among the Gentiles and of the Jews. And Paul says, you know what, I really don't care about the danger. I care about obeying God's will even though it costs me my life. And so that's his perspective. And then you have the, pers the perspectives of the Christian and Tyree. Look at verse 4 again. It says this, We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. And this is the part that you need to maybe highlight or circle when we're going to come back and talk about it. It says, Through the Spirit they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So Paul, his perspective, I need to go. The Christians in Tyree, through the Spirit, we told them not to go to Jerusalem. And then you have the perspectives of the Christians in Caesarea. 
Paul runs up to this guy named Agabus who uses this wonderful object lesson. He takes the belt of Paul that normally is tied around your waist several times and he ties up his own hands and his own feet and he says, whoever owns this belt will be tied up like this by the Jews and will be handed over to the Gentiles. And although Agabus did not forbid him to go to Jerusalem, he simply gave him the warning. This is what's going to happen when you go. And following Agabus' dire prediction, the saints in Caesarea urged him, don't go, Paul. But their counsel did not work as Paul was determined to go. And then on top of it, you have the perspective of Luke. Luke is even is included in this dissenting number. Notice the many times he says we. In other words, that reference himself. Luke pleaded with Paul to change his plans. And after Paul even rejected Luke's plea, the disciples surrendered in verse 14, where they said this, since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. So here's a question for us to discuss a little bit. What do you do with these various perspectives? What do, you, what do you do with Paul? He feels compelled by the Spirit to go. And you have all of these Christian brothers, even one by the Spirit says, in a sense, don't go. Some try to argue that maybe Paul was being disobedient. I don't think this was the case. And here's why. First of all, Luke believed that Paul was in the right to go to Jerusalem because he referenced the Spirit uh, twice. Look at Acts 19, verse 21. It says this. After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. See the Spirit involved? Resolved by the Spirit. Look at the second uh, reference to the Spirit is in Acts chapter 20, verse, verse 22. It says, and now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the, by the Spirit. So in a sense, Luke knows that Paul is compelled by the Spirit. So I don't think Luke disagrees with Paul. But now you have verse 4. What do you do with verse 4? Look at Acts chapter 21, verse 4. The second part, through the Spirit they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then in verse 11, we see he came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. You see the conflict here? How do you deal with that? Paul's compelled, felt leads to by the Spirit. Others speaking in the Spirit saying, don't go. Agabus predicts by the Spirit, this is what's going to happen when you go. I think John Stott does a good job of explaining it because clearly I'm not smart enough to figure it out for myself. This is what he says. He said, we should draw a distinction between prediction and prohibition. Agabus simply predicted what would happen. The conclusion Paul's friends made was based on that information. So their conclusion wasn't infallible but rather was human deduction. In other words, if this is what's waiting for you, it just makes common sense, don't go. Who would walk into harm's way? And maybe this is what helps us understand Acts 21, verse 4. 
It's probably best to look at verse 4 and look at Luke's statement as a condensed way of saying the warning was divine. This is what's going to happen if you go. This is from the Lord. But then the urging was human. So when we know by this spirit that bad things is going to happen, what's natural for us as humans? Don't go. This is what's happening. This is consistent with the Spirit's previous words to Paul. The Spirit's word to Paul combined both a compulsion to go, but also a warning of the consequences. And so Paul had to make these difficult decisions. But such is the cost of following Jesus. And so we can understand these dissenting voices. They love Paul. They were well intended for Paul. And when they consider the inevitable suffering that awaited them, they naturally urge him not to choose the path. But who else did that happen to? Happened in the life of Jesus. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he tells his disciples in Luke 18, verse 31 to 33, Then he took the twelve aside and told them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, insulted, spit on. After they flog them, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. And what did Peter do? What did the disciples do? Don't go. Don't go. Praise the Lord he did not listen to them and that he went down the road of suffering. And this is what we see in Acts 21. We see the Spirit compelling him and the Spirit warning him. This is the road of suffering. And yet Paul, just like our Savior, marched on on that Calvary road towards suffering. So what are some applications we can draw from this cost of discipleship, principles we can learn and apply to our lives as we count the cost of following Jesus? I'm almost done, but here's the first principle I think we can learn. Is love people, but love Jesus more. Love people, but love Jesus more. Paul had a deep love for people. We, we see this deep Christian community that wherever he went, he sought out these believers. There was this time of affection and weeping and praying and embracing and kissing. And yet, he treasured Jesus even more. He was willing to say goodbye to those that he loved so that he could walk in obedience to God and his will. And so I think for us, love people but love Jesus more. What does that look like for our lives? I think it looks like we must resist the urge of people pleasers. Instead of pleasing people, we should instead choose to please Jesus. Because no one or no thing is more valuable than Jesus. And I think all of us inside of our hearts have a desire to please people. And the reality of it is we should ultimately please Jesus. It doesn't mean we should neglect people. We should certainly love them, but we should love Jesus more. We should love him supremely. 
The, the second thing I think we can learn is, is this, is, is value input but follow God's will. Paul listened to the counsel of others. I think refusing to listen to the counsel of others is foolish. Let me say it because it's really important. It's easy for us to have this Lone Ranger mentality. I'm doing my thing. It's my life. You don't tell me what to do. It is foolish not to include others into the process of making that decision. Doesn't always mean you have to listen to them. And so value the input of others, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to make that difficult decision of following Jesus. And so this is what, what, what we see in the life of Paul and the life of, of Jesus. The, the third thing uh, we, we can learn is that when you follow Jesus down the, the Calvary road, in other words, when you follow Jesus down the road of suffering, you are not alone. You are not alone. Jesus is our unfailing friend. He is with us to the very end of the age. And when you follow Jesus, suffering is inevitable. You, just like your Savior, is walking down the road of suffering, bearing the cross. But you're not alone in it. For He is with you. Life on this earth, or life as we know it, is not the end. It's simply the beginning. The best is yet to come. And when we see Christ at the very end, we'll not regret following him. But following him will involve suffering. Don't let anybody fool you that following Jesus is easy. And here's why it's not easy. It might not be outside persecution that none of us have ever experienced, but why it's so difficult to follow Jesus is because it requires you to say no to you. You know who is the hardest person to say no to? It's you. And following Jesus means I have to say no to myself. I have to deny myself. I have to die to myself. And that's a road of suffering in and of itself. And yet I'm not alone when I say no to me. He is with me. And he has walked that road before me. And because he's walked that road before me, I can walk after him, knowing that he is with me. The last truth is this, and I think this is one of the hardest truths. Following Jesus is costly. I'm not going to lie to you. It's very difficult. Look at Paul. He knew it involved suffering. It is very difficult to follow Jesus. It is very costly. But the flip side is not following Jesus is more costly. Like, like that's just the reality. Following Jesus is going to cost you your life. But not following Jesus is going to cost you even more. Uh, Jesus says in Mark 8, verse 36 to 38, for what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give you in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The only thing that costs more than discipleship is the cost of non-discipleship. 
following Jesus now, you'll experience an unspeakable joy. Rejecting him now, you will experience an eternal suffering later. He bids you to come and follow him, and I plead with you, surrender to his lordship. But here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us to walk out of here and say, you know, I just need to try harder. I just need us to do better. Think about the table here. Think about the cost of following Jesus. What does this table remind us of? The table reminds us, first of all, the price that Jesus paid, how much it cost him. It cost his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. And when we get to sit at the table, it reminds us of the privileges that we have in Christ. It is a shadow of what is to come the great wedding feast, the great wedding banquet when we finally sit in the presence of the Lord and we no longer need faith to believe that he's real because he's right there. And I think here's the danger. So many times we want to pick up the cross and follow him, deny ourselves and suffer so that we can have Jesus. That's not the gospel. Because we have Jesus, and this is what that table reminds us of, we too can pick up our cross. We too can follow him, deny ourselves. And we think about the wonderful privilege we have. You see, when we, when we try to, 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 to do better, and we try to deny ourselves so that we can have Jesus, who are you turning to? You're turning to yourself. But because we know we have Jesus and we pick up our cross and we follow him, who, who are we turning to? Who are we looking to? We're looking to Christ. And this is what the table reminds us of. The table reminds us, do not walk here out of this message thinking I need to try harder, I need to do better. This table reminds you, no, I can't, but he can. He has. I am following him, and I get to share in this privilege. And yes, this privilege is a wonderful gift the Lord has given me. And so now I can gladly say no to myself. I can gladly suffer. I can gladly pick up my cross. You know why? Because I have Christ. I get to sit at his table as brothers and sisters. I get to get, draw strength from him as I feast on his body that is the bread of life that satisfies me, as I feast and drink on his blood that is like the living water that covers me, that strengthens me, that fulfills me. And this is what the table reminds us of. And it also reminds us not just the wonderful privilege that we get to share, but it also reminds us that we get to do this together with locked arms as one family, united in Christ, filled with the Spirit. We, as brothers and sisters, get to sit together as we share in the suffering of Christ. We are not alone, for we have Christ that is with us, and we have one another. So now we can take heart. 
And when we find ourselves distracted, and when we find ourselves discouraged, and we find ourselves thinking the cost is too much to follow Jesus, we can come next to each other and say, look at his body that was broken for you. Look at his blood that was shed for you. You have Christ. He is with you. Now follow him. Because think about that unspeakable joy that is awaiting for you, that eternal life that you are experiencing a little bit now, but one day you're going to experience fully. Do not give up. Keep your eyes on Christ. Feast on the body. And this is what that table represents. And so as we get ready, like I want you to meditate, think about Christ's body that was broken for you, his blood that was shed for you. Think about the road of suffering that he endured. Think about the privilege you have in Christ. You have Christ. You don't need to do anything to have him. You already have him. And because you have him, you can pick up that cross. You can pay the price of discipleship because of what he has paid for you. Do not give up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let me pray for us. Our Holy Father, we thank you for this table. We thank you for what it represents. We thank you for how it encourages us. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have. And Lord, I pray for all of us here as we think about the wonderful gift of Christian community, as we think about the cost of discipleship and the fact that we have to constantly die to ourselves and say no to ourselves, not so that we can get you, but we do it because we already have you. Help us. Lord, we're quick to get distracted. We're quick to take our eyes off of you. And may this visual representation of the table of the elements reorient our hearts as we marvel at you as we look to you as we find strength in you and we ask all of this in jesus name amen our holy father what is man that you are mindful of us we're like the flowers that wither we're dust and yet you love us and you sent your son while we were your enemies to die on the cross for our sins to set us free from the bondages of sin to save us from your wrath that was geared towards us and in your son that lived a perfect life we could not live and died a death we were supposed to die you reconciled us you redeemed us. You made us new. And all of this has been made available by faith in you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we are a people that are quick to forget who you are and what you've done. We have a tendency to turn to ourselves and we have a tendency to base our confidence and our self-worth on our performance. And yet every week we're reminded how short we fall and then we feel defeated. And yet, Lord, when we come to your table and we sit and we think about this wonderful privilege we have that your body was broken for us, your blood that was shed for us, it was 
wasn't our body, it wasn't our blood, but it was yours. And you give it freely to us and that as we eat it and as we drink it, we're reminded of the price that you have paid for us. And we feel loved and valued because it's not in our performance. It's how you look at us. And when you see us, you see us as perfect because your son is perfect. We have the righteousness of Christ. We are heirs to the kingdom of God, sons and daughters of the king, more than conquerors. So may we keep our eyes on you. May we say no to ourselves. May we pick up our cross because we have you and you are with us to the very end. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship our King.